I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Bill Bukowski, and we're talking about the life and music of Frederick Chopin. He was a different kind of composer and musician, as you'll soon find out, but he also transformed how we hear the piano and what it can do. We talk about his early life, relationships, ego, and show you new styles of music he brought us, like the Polonaise, Mazurka, Ballade, and more. One of the most incredible things I find about Chopin, Bill, is that he only gave like 30 public performances. Think of the influence and popularity he's had and continues to have in music. Imagine if the Beatles or the Rolling Stones only gave 30 concerts. I used to work at Disney, and doing 30 concerts in 10 days, that was not unusual. That's kind of normal. Of course, Chopin performed a lot, but it was privately in these small concerts and in salons. But what a lasting influence with just these 30 public performances. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think that the influence has more to do with the music that he created. I think he would have agreed with the Beatles that a creative artist isn't just somebody who's about, to, about performing. Sometimes being a creative artist has nothing to do with performing at all. It works for a lot of people. Um, Bob Dylan's still out there on the road heading for another joint, and he's 80 years old. He's been doing it almost constantly for 30 years, but that's not for everybody. And Chopin, well, he just wasn't built that way. But what he did accomplish was changing the way we think about the piano. That's his lasting legacy, I think. Absolutely. And this episode was requested by Catherine, who wrote in to classicalbreakdown at weta.org with her suggestion. And I love it because, Bill, the email, it just had two words, the entire email, Chopin, please. Thank you, Catherine. That's short and sweet and asking you shall receive. So Chopin, born in 1810 in East Central Poland, it seems like his early life was quite stable. He had both parents shortly after being born. His father took a position teaching French at the Warsaw Lyceum, which was also on the palace grounds. I think this really elevated the family's standing. They were able to live on the grounds. I think they had a boarding house for students at the at the school. And he started taking lessons on the piano when he was five years old. And quickly, it sounds like, outpaced his um, his peers, the, the students, and, and even the teachers, it sounds like. And he started composing right after this. It's no wonder, I think, that people thought he was the next Mozart, because when I hear that, you know, we listen to a lot of first and early works by composers in this podcast. And this one especially, it's like, oh, my gosh, you hear it's Chopin. He's 11 years old. You hear all these things he's going to do in music right here in this little piece. Right. He had everything that he needed mm-hmm. right from the beginning. So this Polonaise, um, as, as Chopin called it, would become a, a very big influence, of course, on the piano. And further, I can mention how in, in just a moment. But first, Bill, can you tell us what exactly is a Polonaise? Well, Polonaise basically is a, just means French. It's the French word for Polish. Um, you know, another uh, word for it would be Polaka, as Tchaikovsky uses in the end of his third symphony. But what it really is, a Polonaise is something strictly Polish. It's a kind of a courtly dance in three-quarter time, one of a series of national dances of Poland that uh, Chopin went on to uh, recreate and uh, reimagine. And it just 
elevated the whole thing and the piano with it to, to a new light. And I think it, because it's in this, it's this dance, it's in three, four, it's got this great da-da-da-dum kind of forward-moving motion. And Ala Palaka, as you would see it in, in earlier works, like also in Tchaikovsky, also Beethoven beforehand, but no one did it like this, and he called it Polonaise. John Philip Sousa wrote the presidential Polonaise, which was meant to keep people moving through the White House receiving line, I assume, meeting the president. Um, so you don't want to play something slow where everyone walks slow and just keeps talking. you got to get them moving along. And I think the, the rhythm of the Polonaise does that. And it also is great for things like harmonic emphasis in the music as well, with these small lines on the piano and then these big chords popping out of the out of the texture. It's it's um, when you hear polonaise, you hear Chopin. It's interesting. I wonder if they still do that at the White House. It's been a long time since I did a visitor tour. It sounds like a good idea. Yes, keep the lines and very moving. elegant. Very elegant, I have to add. I agree. So there is something else in his early years that he would be known for, at least in my mind, and and I think that's ego. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but I mean it musically. Right. He wrote for the piano, and only nine works that he wrote included other instruments from the piano. So out of the 200-something he wrote, I mean, it's basically just piano. And he wrote his opus two when he was a teenager, a set of variations on Mozart's La Cidarum La Mano, a very familiar melody. But instead of starting with the theme, like almost every other theme and variation set you hear, it's several minutes of piano indulgence, and it's beautiful. And Bill, when I was listening to this earlier this week, I put it on, and then, and then I was reading something else. And several minutes, I think four or so, go by, and then I start hearing this... Um, La Cidar on La Mano. I thought, oh, what, what am I listening to again? And it's like, oh, I'm listening to this. What have I been listening to the whole time? He's just this long introduction, and it's just exquisite and ego in a good way, where it's just all about the piano and the voice that Chopin's bringing to it. You know, that gets back to comparing him to Mozart, because Mozart did that himself. Mm-hmm. That was his stock and trade, and he would encourage a lot of the time there's no in his piano concertos, there's no cadenza written now because he figured the pianist would know what to do. Just right. take off on your own. I think Mozart would have loved this. Oh, yes. And in a, a little bit later, in the, I think it was 1831, Schumann said of this work in his music publication, hats off, gentlemen, a genius. I think this is a great point. It's so it's such a short point of Schumann, hats off, you know, a, a genius with this piece. But I think it's that Chopin factor. A lot of composers, they could write this whole kind of self-indulgence, kind of noodling, opening several four minutes or so. But for Chopin, it just works. You know, it's interesting. That reminds me that Robert Schumann said something else about Chopin's music that I've never forgotten. I think it's a perfect descriptor. Guns buried in roses. Okay. And every time I listen to Chopin, the Chopin performance, that's what I'm listening for. And what is that? That just means it's nice and and pretty from the start or or on the surface, but deeper down there's so much more going on. There's power and energy and a little bit of danger Mm. in the midst of all that beauty. And I think that that's a really good... Chopin was not a, a strong person. He suffered ill health all of his life, but you wouldn't know it from his music. No, I think I think a lot of pianists would agree. Uh, danger, is, that's it, is, yeah. is a big element in his music. So he he continues to to grow in popularity. Um, he's playing, he's um, writing some music, and he goes to the Warsaw Conservatory. 
and he's traveling in the summers. But now when he's 19, turning 20, he starts to think about leaving Poland, right? He considers going to Italy, but I think there was some political unrest. So then he went to Vienna for a little bit before settling in Paris. From what I understand, a big part of this was in Poland at the time, and even in Warsaw, there was not the musical infrastructure or support to, I don't want to say house, but to support someone like Chopin as compared to somewhere like Vienna or Paris or London, these huge centers of music. Yeah, the musical capitals would be where he he knew where he belonged. And I think the other thing, too, that I want to add is being in Poland in the 19th century wasn't necessarily the safest or mm-hmm. most comfortable place to be. Okay. So... Before he leaves Poland, he gives some farewell concerts. And there's not a lot of musicians or or composers. Usually when they have to leave, it is for, you know, a very particular reason. And for Chopin, at this young age, he is this kind of rock star already. And he premieres some of the works that he wrote that include other instruments like his piano concertos. Um, His number one, for instance, Bill... I think shows that his writing for orchestra is actually kind of weak. It sounds like he skipped a lot of orchestration lessons with um, with one of his teachers. And I go back to this ego idea again in a good way, because in this piano concerto, the orchestra, long introduction, like over four minutes, maybe even a little longer depending on how slow it's played. And they play these three beautiful themes over the course of the introduction. But when the piano comes in several minutes later, he plays them at a completely different level. It's almost like he, he gave them a poorly orchestrated or formed line so that his would be so much better. That's kind of an ingest. But what he does on the piano with those lines is so much um, different. Even There's even parts where you hear the orchestra playing alone. And it, it sounds like a piano. It just sounds like, oh, he played this on the piano real quick and wrote it down, which was strange because sometimes his playing is so thick and richly textured, it sounds like an orchestra. Yeah, this is an interesting critique uh, that has been said about Chopin's contratante works for many years, and we only have the benefit of hindsight. Mm -hmm. We know what came afterwards. But it's probably something to keep in mind that he only wrote these works at the very beginning of his career. Mm -hmm. Uh, when he went to Paris and wrote the works that he's most famous for, he left all that behind because that wasn't what he was meant to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know? And I like how you mentioned hindsight because it, it is fun in hindsight because you, it's almost kind of fun and cute in a way. Look how he's writing for this right here. And then he comes in with this thunderous, extraordinary line on the on the piano. But that wasn't what he was meant to do, right, writing yeah. symphonies and concertos. And eventually he left it behind. But it's they're interesting works to hear of just where he was coming from, if, if, if that makes sense. I think it does. And it's after these concerts, these farewell concerts, that he does leave Poland. And in fact, he would never return to Poland. He saw his parents a few years later. But I think even then, that was the last time he saw them. And he ended up in Vienna for a little bit before settling down in Paris. I think it was even a bit of a, a scuffle trying to get to Paris, something with his visa not being approved or they would not give him travel or something from um, Polish or the Vienna side. So he had to get Paris to kind of act or ask on his behalf for him to get this material to um, to get there. See, there are still problems to this day with international travel. Something to keep in mind. Chopin went through it, we can get through it. Oh, I've got a lot of stories. So we'll get into his life after Poland right after this. 
Classical Breakdown is made possible by WETA Classical. Listen to the music anytime, day or night at WETAClassical.org or on the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. So after moving to Paris, he took the French version of his name, you know, Frédéric Chopin, originally Frédéric Frontichek um, Chopin, right? So just the French version of his name because his father was uh, part French, right? Right. And of course, now he's living in Paris. He needs to sort of settle in and mix in. And while he's in Paris, he meets uh, big uh, name writers, composers, people like Berlioz and, um, and Liszt. So he goes to Paris and he's the star. And that's what's so kind of funny today in hindsight. He only gives these 30 public performances. He's doing so many of these private concerts in salons. I think he told Liszt that playing on a stage in front of people is terrifying, but playing in these soirees and these salon um, concerts was much more approachable. That might, I mean, it's, it is scary. When you're on a big stage in front of 2,000 people by yourself, there's a lot of pressure there. The lights are on or however it was back then. But when you are not on a stage and there's you know a library or books around you, maybe he felt more comfortable. I think Chopin is a patron saint of introverts and shrinking violets everywhere. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, and it comes out in his music, the extroverted part, I guess, maybe. Right. He didn't need to convey his passion on the stage. As a matter of fact, he didn't like that kind of histrionic behavior. I think it was one of the things that annoyed him about Franz Liszt, at least when Liszt was a performer. But all of his passion, all of his emotion is contained in the music that he wrote. Absolutely. So you think, well, he's in Paris and he's making a living, but he's not doing these big public concerts, how's he making money? So he's, of course, charging fees to give these concerts. And he made a lot of money uh, teaching piano, Bill. I tried to do some currency you know, conversion. It's not easy um, going back this far. He did charge one guinea for a lesson and 20 for a private concert. Today, I think that's about $450 for a lesson and 9000 for the concert. I'm not surprised about the price for the the private concert. A big piano stars today, I think they're earning more than that, actually. Yeah, yeah, but even for the time, that was a good payoff. It was a good payoff. What's interesting is that $450 lesson fee, that is not something I think you can really, really find today. Even the musicians in the biggest orchestras, I've, I've, some charge over $150. That's kind of hard. Oftentimes, if you go somewhere to take a lesson with someone... Like a master class or something. A master class, yeah, that's when you're with a group of people, but like a one-on-one lesson, Okay. then... If someone comes out of town to who someone's coming out of town before and they want a lesson with me, oftentimes I, I don't charge. You know, especially if they're a student, they're coming in. Um, of course, you do charge money for uh, for regular lessons, but that's to say he was teaching wealthy children or wealthy students, and he was able to command that price as one of the stars of France. I think it also probably showed just how good he was. You know, it's a way of sort of advertising. You know, well, if you can afford this, and you can, you got Chopin. You know. So the Polonaise is a big Polish influence Chopin brought um, or and left us with. There's also a mazurka that he writes. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, mazurka is another one of those uh, classical Polish dances. It comes from Mazovia, and it's kind of like a, a jumping-off kind of a dance. It's also in three-quarter time, and for Chopin, of course, it's a jumping-off into uh, something greater. You can't dance to Chopin's mazurkas, necessarily. I mean, you can if you want, I guess, but uh, they're not really designed that way. I find the mazurkas, every time I hear one coming up, my, I automatically perk up, because some of my favorite Chopin music is in the mazurkas, because they're more than just 
a dance. And what's what's one that you think would be a, a great representation that's more than the dance? If I could pick one piece by Chopin to say to somebody, give me five minutes, like there's a series in the New York Times, give me five minutes and I can show you what the magic of Chopin is. That's the Mazurka Number no. 4, Opus 17. It's a marvelous work, and it's well worth checking out. I wish we could play it in its entirety here, but of course we can't. No. But we will have performances on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And you said five minutes. A lot of his works are on the shorter side. The concertos that he wrote, you know, those are you know longer pieces. But a lot of the music he wrote, like the Polonaises and the Mazurkas, they're, they're shorter Um they're really all miniatures. Miniatures, that's yeah, a good word for yeah. it. Even um, the, the, the Polonaise fantasy, I think, clocks in at about 13 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. And it's, it's a marvelous journey. Mm-hmm. But again, it's most of his music uh, that he wrote for solo piano is in miniature form, sometimes even less than a minute. And what he includes in that minute is, um, as you said before, I mean, there's danger and it can be terrifying. And Polonaise, Mazurka, um, another thing he was writing was what we call etudes, which etude is basically French for study. This is interesting because to give a little context, every musician plays etudes. Every, you know, when you're taking lessons, you have etudes. These are works written for a solo instrument, your instrument, and they're written with the purpose in mind of working on something within playing. You're working on your range or a certain technique, articulation, or playing very smoothly. Typically, I mean, it's common you play, you work on two etudes a week, a technical one and a legato or a cantabile, a very singing one. And these are not something you really, you don't play these in concerts. This is for study. Chopin elevates them to a a new level and extreme difficulty. You know, you're not playing these when you're 12, unless you're Chopin, I guess. But um, you can hear these on recitals because they're so difficult and they're just so musically elevated. They're basically, it's, it's a study in name alone because it actually goes further than that. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, the famous uh, Tristesse Etude, which is one of his most popular ones, or the uh, Etude Number 12 in his first set of etudes, this, the revolutionary etude, mm-hmm. which, again, packs a lot of power, a lot of, a lot of guns and the roses there, if you will. Also, Nocturnes. And another work that Chopin basically brought us was the ballade. This, I mean, you hear it and you think ballad. And so you, you, it, this is not an Elvis ballad, though. This is Chopin. And there's some of the most difficult works for the piano. These, It's incredible when you're hearing this, what is happening. Sometimes the hands, they seem completely independent of each other. Um, and that's basically something he invented. The nocturne already existed. Um, the Ballade didn't, at least not in this form, until Chopin did it. And he only wrote four, but they are... They're, they're amazing works, each one of them, individual, completely different from one another, and each one um, a perfect example of what a musical ballad is. A ballad, of course, being a romantic poem or mm-hmm. a, uh, telling a story, sometimes a sad story, uh, but not always. So there's a lot of drama in a ballad. Mm-hmm. But in, in Chopin's music, too, there's also a lot of drama. There's no actual narrative. There's no story behind any of them. It's just the style, if you will. Chopin is in his 20s, in the 1830s. And romantically, he had um, a couple of interests. One of them was, if I can say her name correct, uh, the artist Maria Wodzinska. 
I think is how you say her name. She was an artist. She made one of the portraits that we have of Chopin and still um, look at today. That relationship did not last long. I think it broke up a year later. He had an envelope with her letters that said, My Sorrow. Mm. That's um, kind of heartbreaking. But then he started a 10-year relationship, nearly 10 years, with the writer George Sand. Yeah, that was uh, probably the defining relationship of most of his life. They were definitely star-crossed. It was... uh... I love you go away in equal measure on both sides. It's it's a long story. Yes. And he also, right after this, this is in 1838, Tim and George Sand, they are in Mallorca. And this is when he gets very ill. It seems like maybe the most ill he's been in a long time. You mentioned he was uh, on the weaker side. Um, he did get sick a lot. And he said that um, there were three doctors that came to see him. One said he was dead. One said he was dying. One said he was about to die or something like that. So George Sand basically had to be caregiver and get him off the island. Yeah, the trip to Mallorca was probably as good a distillation of what the problem with their relationship was. For somebody who had problems with consumption and breathing and lungs and everything like that. A damp place like Mallorca, which it was at that particular time, it's like the last place on earth that you should be. Yeah, usually you go to a drier place. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Chopin learned that lesson the hard way, but he was also a a friend with Franz Liszt, and I think you alluded to earlier, it was kind of a love-hate relationship. Competitive, I think. Competitive. You would, you would imagine to a couple of uh, pianist composers like that, um, whether as performers or musicians, temperamentally they were very different. Franz Liszt was probably one of the most generous-hearted musicians and composers who ever lived. And um, But they were two completely different temperaments. The other one, too, as I alluded to before, was Robert Schumann loved Chopin's oh, yeah. music, but he didn't love Schumann's music. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of those things, different artistic temperaments. And when it came to playing his music, because he's making money by um, giving these private concerts, giving these lessons, and he's publishing his music. He's making a lot of money by publishing his works. And there's some great quotes about just the the style or you know what makes Chopin Chopin. Berlioz said that he had... Um, Chopin created a kind of chromatic embroidery whose effect is so strange and piquant as to be impossible to describe. Virtually nobody but Chopin himself can play this music and give it this unusual turn. For me, again, that's that Chopin factor. Another composer said, What in the hands of others was elegant embellishment, in his hands became a colorful wreath of flowers. Both really beautiful descriptions of Chopin's music. One of the things that I think are are involved in that, in those statements, are the use of rubato, which I think today means something a a bit different than before. Basically, in music, if if you see rubato written into your part, that's basically indicating, here's a moment where I can be much more expressive and much more liberal with the time and the rhythm. I basically can dictate and control the, the pacing here. in Chopin's time, it was slightly different uh, in this way in terms of it meant speeding up and then slowing back down. Like stretching it a little. Stretching, right. You're literally robbing time from one place to, um, to give to another. So maybe there's a different way of doing it, but you hear this change of tempo all the time in his music, and it's not written in actually most of the time. So there's definitely an interpretive choice that 
musicians have to make. But for me also, that's what makes Chopin Chopin in the sense of the tempo is almost sometimes nebulous. It is not, music cannot, you almost can't dictate written on a written page in music what the music actually is. And it gives uh, performers to this day sort of a, a chance to really sort of stretch out and see what they can do with Chopin's music. What they can do with Chopin's music. That's an important point because everyone's putting their interpretation on it, um, on his music. So reasons for you might slow down or, or speed up or do this rubato stealing time moment is to especially in Chopin, there's a repeat of material. The big theme is coming back in. He'll stretch it out to make it really extravagant. And then you jump right back into the rhythm. Another way is to just heighten the expressive moment. In his piano concerto, there's some beautiful themes when the piano comes in that are just, he's holding on to you and he doesn't let go in his music, basically. Um, And I think part of that is making you hang by a thread waiting for that next note. Right, wondering where it'll be and what, where it's going. Other works he wrote, Scherzos, one of my favorite works built that I always recommend is the Scherzo in B minor. That's one of my favorites too. Okay, it's one of the first things I heard, actually my roommate in conservatory, he played it all the time. He wasn't a piano major, he was insane. He could do anything on the piano. Um, but he would play that and it blew my mind every time. So that's one I always recommend. The first time I heard it mm-hmm. was years ago. And then there's that middle movement that's the the little Christmas lullaby. Oh yeah. And I remembered that from my father's records growing up and I'd heard that and it kind of stopped me in my tracks and brought me back to when I was a kid listening to oh, wow. Christmas records. Oh, I think Chopin would be pleased. He also wrote like many other composers would, in the vein of Johann Sebastian Bach, these a set of preludes. Yeah, 28 preludes, which are, that's a marvelous collection of works that is probably one of the one pieces of, or the one genres that Chopin wrote that you have to listen to them all at once. I mean, you can excerpt them and play them here and there, but they really need to be heard from beginning to end. Okay. Uh, takes a little less than an hour, I think, but it's, uh, it's just a remarkable journey. Sometimes you see the preludes described as being also very characteristic. It's almost like sometimes they are depicting something. But Chopin was really not into programmatic music or depicting something like that at all, was he? No, he he wasn't. And the other thing uh, that I want to point out, a lot of people, and myself included, have favorite Chopin works. And typically they're drawn to the ones with the nicknames. Tristesse, uh, Raindrop Prelude. He hated, hated anybody putting nicknames or any kind of extra musical Mm -hmm. image on his music. Uh, He and Stravinsky would have been very much simpatico in that regard. He wanted just, I mean, no no titles or nicknames. It was Polonaise One or, you know, the Opus, whatever. The music said everything that it needed to say. Which is, I mean, it, it really does. It is some of the most characteristic, dreamy, it'll put you right into a whole new world, but he just leaves it as it is. And it'll, sometimes it'll also rattle your world. Rattle is, your world, Which is also yes. what he was trying to do. So Chopin, unfortunately, um, did not live a very long time. He, in his 30s, starts to decline with his health. The last public concert he gave was during at the end of a tour in Great Britain in 1848. And in London, that November, he gave a charity concert for Polish refugees. And he ended up being sick most of that winter, mostly bedridden, before he would then pass in June of the following year at age 39. It seems like, according to the American Journal of Medicine in 2017, they observed his heart, 
which I guess is in a jar. Yeah, it, that's another thing, too. When he was buried, he, and Chopin is, rests at Père Lachaise, but he wanted his heart buried in Poland, which mm. at the time was difficult to do, but eventually his uh, heart did wind up back in Poland. That's pretty beautiful. You know, his heart is, is, yeah. is back in Poland. But the American Journal of Medicine said that he probably died of a, what would be a rare case of pericarditis because of chronic tuberculosis. Right. Yeah, that's what did him in, a heart infection. His funeral, just two weeks later, and required tickets to attend, assumingly because, you know, to ensure that there was enough seating. I think 3,000 people showed up and um, trying to to get in or, or, or just to see or pay their respects. Of course, they could not get inside, but definitely loved in his time. So he left us with over 200 works that survived, almost all for the piano. They all have the piano in them, but only a few have extra instruments. And he elevated the piano to a level that I think we still feel today. He totally changed everything. You think of Beethoven being instrumental in making the piano bigger, um, and the things he was doing with the whole range of the keyboard. Chopin is, I mean, he's like, he's in a race car. He wrote only for the piano, and he wrote better for the piano than anybody before or since. Nobody wrote so distinctively for the piano. It's it's understandable why his works don't really transpose to other instruments very well. No, no I, I almost never hear of it at all. No, I mean, there was the uh, the ballet Les Sylphides arranged mm-hmm. for orchestra, but of course that was for a ballet. Yeah. But um, no, it was written expressly and purposely and lovingly for the piano, and that's how they're best heard. And Chopin lived a life that, I don't want to say unremarkable, but it seemed like there wasn't a, a level of, of drama and things that he, he lived or, or dealt with compared to some other composers, sometimes unfortunately. He seemed, he, he lived a mostly normal life within the confines of being this celebrity, of course. Yeah, and also in very interesting times. That's Mm -hmm. uh, something to say. And I want to take this opportunity, too, to point people who are curious about the life of Chopin. It's a movie that I've always liked. Um, It's got mixed reviews, but I've seen it a couple of times, and I really like it. It's called Impromptu. came out in 1992, uh, starring Hugh Grant as Chopin, uh, Judy Davis as George Sand, Julian Sands is Franz Liszt, and uh, Bernadette Peters is Franz Liszt's lover, the uh, Comtesse d'Agoux. And there's other uh, actors that are in it. And it showcases Chopin's life with these different people around him and doesn't sensationalize it all that much. But it's actually kind of an interesting film to watch. I think I might have to watch. I've not seen that. Yeah. Impromptu. Yeah, it's, it's, it kind of appeared and disappeared very quickly, but um, it's. I found it really very charming. And the principal actors that I just mentioned, I mean, it's worth to see it just for them alone. And they do, I thought they did a really good job. I, the director's name escapes me at the moment. Okay. Well, we'll have, I'll put something on the show notes page um, for that. And that's all I have for the life and music of Chopin, Bill. I'm going to put more performances on the show notes page, but do you have anything else for us for Chopin? Well, there are a lot of uh, performers over the years who have played Chopin's music. I think probably the um, the one recording that a lot of people think of when they think of Chopin were the recordings made by Arthur Rubinstein. Mm-hmm. Sort of, he sort of set the gold standard. Uh, one of my personal favorites was Vladimir Ashkenazi, who recorded all of Chopin's music, and I think got that "Guns Buried in Roses" concept uh, down pretty good. Murray Pariah made wonderful recordings of the uh, four ballads, 
and some of Chopin's other works too. Uh, Christian Zimmerman is another one, Maria Joao Pires, uh, most recently Nelson Frere and uh, Stephen Huff uh, both recorded the Nocturnes and they're two completely different looks at the Nocturnes mm. and both uh, really worth checking out. I mean, it sounds like Chopin was really a pianist composer. He was, he was for sure. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. You'll find more information about this episode on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send any comments, questions, or episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. <laughs>